The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Great, this thing doesn't even take cash. Please present data number. Present data number. Uh, sorry, I, I, le I left it at home. Please press one. Where the hell am I? If you'll just hold your barcode up to the screen, we can process your application as quickly as possible. I didn't apply for anything. I was kidnapped and brought here. We're sorry you've fallen through the bureaucratic cracks, but with your speedy cooperation, we can have you mainstreamed in no time. No time is what I've got. I have friends who are expecting me. Now, why am I here? Why, you attempted to use money, of course. And you don't use money here, of course. <laughs> what was I thinking? So tell me, what's the drill, huh? Is it a chip in the head or a bone graft? Or is this idiot bracelet the key to the bank, huh? You know, just for once, I'd like to put a coin in a slot and get a lousy pack of gum instead of being sucked into some kind of gulag. Is that too much to ask for, Mr. Number? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, December 9th, 2021. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Yes, we're all getting sucked into some kind of gulag being created by Agenda 21 and the Great Reset. A society with, quite literally, no money, where we will all own nothing and be happy. If you're like most people, used to using money, taking that idea seriously, or trying to concretize or visualize this planned high-tech dystopia, is almost impossible. When you accept money in payment for your effort, you do so only on the conviction that you will exchange it for the product of the effort of others. And that requires the existence of trust, something we take for granted in our financial dealings with one another. We trust that our money can be exchanged for physical goods and services created by others. Money, of course, in order to be money, depends upon trust. That is why money, like trust itself, is part of the glue that binds societies and people together. And that is why money, like trust itself, must be destroyed in order to implement the great financial reset. So before getting to the money part of our trust theme today, let's begin with the nature of trust itself. It just so happens that the erosion of trust and the atomization of society was the theme of the conversation between Robert Vaughn and Professor Salim Mansour released on Just Right's video platforms during the past week, and which comprises the bulk of today's broadcast. Along with the voices of Professor David Haskell on the coming apocalypse and the amazing Polly St. George on the use of high-tech to turn us into slaves, to this no-money system, the big picture that emerges from today's broadcast will no doubt be very disturbing. So between now and the closing minute or two of our show today, you won't be hearing much from me. It all begins right after this reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. 
follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of Just Right's social media links and our archived broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. I'm joined once again by Professor Salim Mansur of Western University, and we're, today we're going to be talking about trust and what builds a society, how we lose trust in some of the um, institutions that we have trusted for generations, including our elections, um, education, teachers, university professors, present company excluded, Salim. Um, our government, our politicians, mind you, there was very little trust there to begin with. Doctors. I just saw a tweet by Maxime Bernier, um, an article in saltwire.com where a woman in Nova Scotia was denied access to her personal doctor because she was not vaccinated. So can we trust our doctors anymore? Can we trust our healthcare professionals? Can we trust our employers to do the right thing? if they're going to deny a job to somebody because of their medical history? Are we going to continue to trust the financial system when the dollar today is going to be in the toilet tomorrow and your purchasing power is going to be destroyed because we can no longer trust our money. We can no longer trust even our neighbors in this world of vaxism, which is the new racism. You're vaccinated, you're not vaccinated, you're going to be casting uh, aspersions on the moral character of somebody who may be vaccinated or may not be vaccinated. It goes both ways, this vaxism. So our neighbors, you're, you're going to treat them a little more cautiously with what you might say to them about this issue. Can we trust the law anymore? Can we trust the police to uphold the law? Or are we going to uh, live in fear of anybody in a uniform, including the military now, for example, in Australia, which is being deployed to take people who are unvaccinated and positive into a quarantine camp, a concentration camp, if you will. So, Celine, what is the basis of a society if it's not trust? And with the erosion of trust, which I'm going to take as, as given, today, can we basically see the destruction of society? Very important question, Robert. It is ultimately not a political question, it is a philosophical question, a cultural question, but it all springs from the basic problem we are faced in society today, uh, that is politics. Recently, I was in Washington, D.C. for a few days. I went down to a conference where I was invited and I wanted to travel so that I could see for myself on the ground what is the situation. This conference was the annual conference of the Association for the Study of Middle East and Africa. And people came from not only United States, from within United States, but from outside United States. And there were a lot of Europeans and people from the Middle East, uh, professors and journalists, Turks, Arabs, Israelis. And so it was a mixed crowd of people in the conference. But what struck me after spending several days there was how little people spoke about the current situation politically, not only in America, but the consequences of what is happening in America beyond America. People avoided the question, you know, carefully 
people didn't want to talk about it. People didn't want to talk about the political situation in America under the new administration, what had happened over the past year. And they didn't want to talk about things surrounding COVID. And I noticed that in the sense that whenever anyone around having a coffee or a meal with a number of people mention any of this thing, people deliberately walked away from engaging on these issues. And yet the meeting, the conference, the topic of the conference was political and cultural politics in the Middle East. And the biggest issue coming out of the Middle East over the last six months has been the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban once again. The keynote speech that was given by a former ambassador of Pakistan who was invited to give the keynote speech, talked about the return of the Taliban and what it meant and the all-round failure of the United States in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. He phrased it interestingly as it was not a 20-year plan for Afghanistan that failed, but 20 plans each for one year that failed. And later, after the keynote address and people got together again, there was a deliberate effort not to dig too deep into the Biden administration and the problems of the Biden administration that was reflected in the return of the Taliban. So I came away recognizing that people don't want to talk about the big issues, the key issues, or the important issues, is because they don't know who is listening what might be the consequences, who might tap you on the shoulder, and so on and so forth. The people mingled, but the people did not engage. And the reason people did not engage was people did not trust not only the other, but themselves, they did not know. They did not feel comfortable. And so I walked away and I come back reflecting on this matter. And this is the United States, the capital of the free world, or at least it was the capital of the free world until very recently. And here in the capital of the free world, people are reluctant to speak. We've come from a nation of trusting to a nation of suspicion. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we can see, I mean, we have been watching this. We have been running through the situation about people being deplatformed, cancel culture, the violence that we have watched on the news and on television over the past 20 months. And all of that cumulatively has been very costly. And the ultimate cost is the erosion of trust among people. It is not simply with strangers, it is with former friends, as you said, with neighbors. It is within families, you know, uh, people have become more guarded about what they say, what they think, how they deal with each other. And what does that mean? I think that's a huge question. But what it means at the simplest term is that any relationship is ultimately built upon trust. You know, a family is built upon a trust, a relationship between a man and a woman that is the nucleus of a family is built upon trust. And on that trust is built a civilization, a culture, all the various institutions and how we engage with each other at all levels in our life, you know, with teachers, with doctors, with lawyers, with professors, and so on and so forth. And if that begins to fall apart, if that erodes, then 
ultimately where are we headed and i fear we are headed into becoming a society of atomized individuals and as atomized individuals we can then be manipulated whichever way the powers want to manipulate us and take us because we don't know where we are headed we don't trust each other we don't know what the information that we are receiving is factual is based on evidence or it is constructed and fabricated and all of that leads to this atomization where we exist but we no longer exist as a people related to each other sharing common values and upon which then we engage with each other i think that's where we are headed or if we had not already arrived and it means a very bleak future tonight I'm going to look in the future and make a prediction and I'm not going to keep you in suspense. My prediction is that things are going to get much worse. Think of it like this, if this COVID rehearsal is rated PG, then the coming situation will be more like something that's rated R. Being fired from jobs, expelled from school, banned from public places is the start, not the end. And remember, when the politicians and university leaders are saying to you that you're you're guilty, they're lying to you. Our crime is that we hold views different from our government, different from our university administrators or our, our employers. In fact, our views up until a few months ago were protected by laws and guaranteed under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Furthermore, not only are, are our convictions legal, but they're grounded in evidence. But that no longer matters because rights no longer matter. Facts, evidence, truth no longer matter. Under this new normal, the tyrants in charge know that anything goes. So we have to wonder, or maybe we're more wise to begin to worry, what's the next government mandate going to be? What are these politician educators, employers who don't care about our rights and don't care about evidence, what are they going to compel us to do next? Well, we don't know for sure, but I do know the future will be worse. Now, if my prediction is troubling, you may be tempted not to believe it. You might say, how do you know the future is going to be worse? Well, I'd like to say that I have a pretty good track record when it comes to predictions. I've made some other public predictions about our culture and those have all come true. In the last five years, I've written a bunch of news articles and produced videos about the situation in our universities and the state of our society. About our university, I made predictions that the time was coming soon when students would be expelled and staff and faculty would be fired for the crime of exercising their freedom of conscience. And how did I know? Because I saw student mobs banning speakers they disagreed with. And I saw professors punishing students who thought differently from them. And I saw administrators passing policies that made legally held opinions illegal on campus. And I knew that things were going to get worse, and they did, and they will. Now, about the state of our larger society, I wrote other news pieces and I appeared on news programs and, and the theme I repeated again and again was this. The institutions that used to be impartial in their defense of the freedom of Canadians have been taken over by radicals 
who believe that impartiality is evil. And they believe that promoting their side and only their side is the highest good. The government is lost. The education system is lost. The courts are lost. The media is lost. They won't report the facts that support your view, but they will demonize you. And you've seen it. The police are lost. In the last two years, we've seen that most police will follow any direction the politicians give them. We've watched some groups break laws, riot, and vandalize, and the police do nothing because those groups destroy things in the name of social justice. But for people like you, law-abiding citizens, who are simply begging for your charter rights to be protected, the police have harassment, fines, and even jail. All of these institutions are now controlled by people who think there is one correct way to believe and one correct way to act, and those who don't agree and act like them, they're not just wrong, they're enemies to be opposed and punished. And listen, here's how these tyrants always justify their behavior. They will always tell you that their unjust behavior is justified because it's for the public good. It's to keep you safe. It's to keep society from harm. And this should sound familiar because we've seen it with their COVID lies. Their lies that say the, un the unvaccinated are the cause of the spread and punishing them keeps the vaccinated people safe because strangely, the vaccine doesn't do that. Well, the future is going to be worse. I want you to realize that the injustice you're experiencing now, it just didn't pop up overnight. The erosion of your rights and freedoms under the false pretense of keeping people safe or saving society from harm, it's been going on for years. And the problem is most of you haven't noticed or maybe you haven't cared because it wasn't happening to you personally. For some of you, it may be the case that you didn't care because you don't support the values of people like the Trinity Western students or, or those pro-life Christians. Well, it's time to decide. Do you support freedom of belief? How about freedom of expression? How about freedom to dissent? Do you or don't you? You know, there's a name for people who want to have something for themselves but we'll deny it to others. We call them politicians <laughs> or university professors. So let's think about your allegiance. I'd hope that you'd want to act out of integrity. I'd hope that you'd want to act out of compassion. But if that can't motivate you, then let me engage your self-interest. This totalitarian cancer is spreading to every part of your life. So you better think and you might want to join the team that has your back because the future is going to be worse. For many of you, I imagine right now, your life feels like an apocalypse. Sure, there are no mindless zombies, <laughs> at least not the kind that you see in the movies. But nonetheless, for you, this is an apocalypse. And in some ways, maybe that's a good thing. And I'll try to explain. 
What many people don't realize is that the word apocalypse comes from the Greek, and it literally means to uncover or to remove the veil. This experience of COVID, this COVID mandate, has pulled away the veil that hid the true face of your government and the true face of the media and the true face of your professors and university administration. And the true face behind that veil is ugly, isn't it? And they've left you with nothing to lose. Now, there's an old saying, tyrants are most afraid of those who have nothing left to lose because in fighting, they can only gain. Listen, in fighting these tyrants, you can only gain. So stop pretending that things are going to get better because they won't. Stop pretending that your silence is going to get you through this. It won't. And stop pretending, most of all, stop pretending that your situation is unique because it isn't. You are not the first generation to have your freedoms threatened and to be persecuted for your beliefs. So please take a lesson from the early Christians who on pain of death stood up to the Roman emperor and said, you will not tell me what to believe. Or take a lesson from your grandparents who on pain of death stood up to an equally evil tyrant, your great-grandparents, and said during World War II, you will not tell me how to live. The lesson from history is clear. Your only hope is to become organized and active. Be willing to sacrifice today for freedom tomorrow. Take the long view of the situation, not the short fix. I kid you not when I say your time is short. Start protesting with signs that embarrass these tyrants. Write letters and make videos exposing them. Send them out wide, widely. Share them on social media. Put them on your university's social media. Get politically active with parties that stand up for freedom. Because this is the apocalypse. And your enemies have been revealed. It's time to speak up and act up and make their lives much more uncomfortable because they certainly intend to do that to you. And I predict, as bad as it is right now, if you do nothing, the future will be much worse. Thank you. You know, when I talked to you earlier, a few days ago about this topic, I was thinking about trust and what it really means. And I came up with the idea that to trust someone is to be able to predict successfully how they will react to me and to certain situations. For example, if I'm walking down the street, I trust that the people I'm meeting are not going to kill me, jump me, rob me, you know. I trust the traffic in the other lane not to verge onto my lane although it happens sometimes right, by accident. I trust when I go into a store and I pay with my money that they are going to accept it, that it's not counterfeit, that the change that I get back will be correct. I can predict that when I engage with people, I predict that they will act honorably and morally and honestly. And when you take away trust, you live in fear. 
and you wonder whether or not you can ever get back to some sort of sense of happiness because that's also the consequence of no trust and unpredictability is that you lose your your happiness you lose your sense of value in a society because the society is broken now i want to go to one area of trust particularly and that is the mainstream media what i now call the welfare press because they are getting government handouts in order to be able to survive i grew up in the 60s and 70s in canada more precisely in newfoundland we had two channels cbc and ctv we all watched nolton nash at 11 o'clock we all watched um, floyd robertson right we basically trusted them to give us the news, unvarnished truth and honest opinion based on a moral, trustworthy society. That's gone. That, that's out the window. Now, that particular industry, the media, the only industry, by the way, that I can say in their advertisement emphasizes trust your trusted news source, you know, the people you can trust to give you the news. They use it in their headlines. They use it in their banners and their bylines all the time and in their marketing. I don't know many other industries that say that. And yet they are the single industry that has eroded their trust completely. Nobody can trust the welfare press anymore the big networks in the United States, we know not to trust them. <laughs> Ironically, in a sense, Celine, this goes to predictability too, because now I can predict that if the mainstream media says one thing, it means the other. You know, your comments about the mainstream media, because they, to me, they are the, the focus. They are the filter through which everything that we know is being filtered and, and selected. And now we can't trust them. And they, those particular people in that industry are the ones destroying trust. Your thoughts? Yes, the media was the window through which we looked at the world. We got our information. And then when we looked out and got our information, we did with that information, that is we, we adjusted that information. We took that information and we, compared it with other sets of information and so on and so forth. And, you know, we came to a certain conclusion and we could do that because the media, while it is in a sense plural, the media was diverse. The media had many windows, you know, and you could choose your window on the basis of what was the information, what was the view that you were getting that you felt that you could trust. And as you say, trust means to be able to predict, you know, and over time, that's what you learned. You know, you learned that, you know, certain set of information, once you took that information in, you can then make a prediction about the world with which you are interacting, you know, and you could, you know, accordingly conduct yourself. But that has gone to a large extent because we don't have that many more windows. We have one big tech window. And that one big tech window basically controls the entire information flow between me, between you, and the world that we are trying to understand, relate to, uh, derive our information, and therefore conduct ourselves accordingly. We just have that one window. And when we lose that sense 
that we can trust that window and the information that we are getting because that window tells us, that media tells us that if you're not going to take this information and if you're going to question this information and if you're going to say something about this information that we, the media, do not and would not permit you to say, then we're going to cancel you. We're going to deplatform you. We're going to close your window. Then what happens is I have this image in my mind. It is the legend of the six blind men trying to figure out what is this creature in their room, the elephant, you know, and, and nobody can figure out what it is. So we are left to ourselves and we are left to ourselves to understand the world without the help of anything, without the instrument that can tell us, you know, and each one of us are in that sense deficient. We are not in that sense fully capable by ourselves individually to grasp the whole of reality. That's what the relationships are, you know. We know from our understanding that the world that, that was the former Soviet Union or any totalitarian society in that sense, which has one window and a control window with which or through which the people look at the world, understand the world, conduct themselves accordingly, eventually collapses. And it collapses ultimately because the people no longer trust each other. And it becomes extremely difficult to operate in that world till a point comes in time when the world itself, that world itself breaks down it can no longer operate on the basis of what is fundamental. That is, in a world, two plus two equal four, not as George Orwell's famous example in the book, uh, 1984, is that two plus two is five, you know, and despite all your understanding, you have to accept two plus two is five. And you accept it going forward, uh, under compulsion, under coercion. It is not on the base of trust, reason, and understanding. So yes, I agree with you. You need objective law, and we no longer have objective law. And that goes in with trust as well. We can no longer trust our politicians and the media to consider objective law in this country. Yes, but at the heart of the question of objective law is the issue of freedom individual freedom and that's what i was saying the consent of the people you know i mean any any relationship that emerges in an institution and and the ultimate institution being the state uh is resting upon the consent of the people and it derives its legitimacy its lawfulness its authority from the consent of free people but if that is broken, if that is snapped, if the consent of the people is no longer required in operating the state, then what is the state's basis of legitimacy except raw power? And the people then are removed. People have become atomized. People, you and I, no longer trust each other because, you know, we as atomized individuals are living in a state of fear. We are powerless against 
this overwhelming coercive power of the state. So yes, objective law, but in, in, in this situation, the objective law is whatever the state says is the objective law. Back to Orwell, two plus two is five, you know. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. I first made this video called You Are Being Groomed, June 20th, 2019. And it's all about the things I was seeing at that time, six months before the COVID pandemic broke out. Coming out of China, primarily, but also coming out of banking conferences and other things with regards to how they were going to use mobile data, in other words, smartphones, to build the new economy, to do the Great Reset. They hadn't come up with the name Great Reset yet, but I think as you watch this and you keep in mind that this is from before the pandemic, you can see for yourself how... Um, how all of this has evolved. And you might even be able to see that their plans back then for how they wanted the world to go were greatly accelerated by this thing they called COVID. I want to show you, try, I want to try to pack into one video all of the things that I have learned about where the global controllers, the technocrats, the, the world communists, where they want to take us. And I want to show you what is really happening now. I want to show you how they're going to sell it to you. I want to show you what experts have said. It's truly a nightmare world. And I don't care if people accuse me of fear mongering. You're going to see you are trading convenience for slavery. You really are. And in the case of the smartphone, you really are addicted. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. Did you ever think smartphones would get to this point? No, I definitely would never have thought that I would need my phone so much. And need is the key word, not just want. I think we, I think we all knew in the back of our minds even though we feigned this whole line of like, there probably aren't any really bad unintended consequences. I think in the back, deep, deep recesses of our minds, we, we kind of knew something bad could happen. But I think the way we defined it was not like this. It literally is a point now where I think we have created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. And here's why. Take a look at this clip from a Bloomberg uh, video, a little documentary they did over in China. There are dystopian innovations that seem to touch every facet of life here. I ran into one example of this while attempting to rehydrate. And it has to do with these things. QR codes. You know the drill. You scan the code and something pops up on your phone, like a promotion or discount. America laughed these things off years ago, but here, they run the entire economy. Cash and credit cards are history. Instead, you scan QR codes to pay for everything. Restaurants, groceries, even buskers. You just can't opt out. You can't opt out. And then once you're in the system, once you're being tracked, it's 
It's all bets are off. You're in. It's like Eve with the apple. It's like the vampire knocking on your door. You have to let it in, but once you let it in even a little bit, you can't get rid of it. Listen to this. These guys, and this is from the same Bloomberg mini documentary. These guys are Westerners, and they went to China to work in the tech industry there. So they should know what's happening, right? Well, just listen to this. Living in a very tightly regulated communist country, does that bother you or, or you don't care? Like the presumption, at least that I got before I came from Australia, you're sort of like moving into sort of like a militarized state kind of thing. Like things are going to be really intense. But like you take a beer, you just like walk down the road, hang out in the park, fine. Yeah. Do that back in my hometown, Australia, like yeah. straight to the cop house. Yeah. Like. But then play spike ball on the grass oh, yeah. and then all oh, of a sudden... Yeah. The cops come and stop well, you. Well, you got, you jaywalked and you had facial yeah. recognition. Well, the craziest thing, I actually got this. Yeah, so I was, I was uh, jaywalking in Nanshan and all of a sudden I got a fine to my, my, my WeChat. Was it instant? It, it was it was uh, about two, 20, 20 seconds after, I guess. <laughs> and because I had money in my balance, it just went straight out. And this is just the most incredible thing. You didn't even, it just came straight out. Didn't even authorize and it. And that was incredible. That's crazy. I was then very, very worried that they have your face and the facial recognition. Like, facial recognition. They have everyone's though. I mean, when you get across the border, they, 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 they take they that picture. Scan, yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, so it's all in the system. They know where you are. That's you know? scary. See how shocked they were when that guy said, that he jaywalked and instantly they took the money out of his bank account for the fine for jaywalking. You see how shocked they were. They didn't think, they, they thought they could just go in the door a little bit. They thought they could just, just have a taste. But no, you're in or you're out. And once you're in, you're stuck in. And you know what else? You're going to have to pretend to like it. Because pretending to like it is part of the game. This is a complete invasion of who you are. Look at this scene from the documentary that Vice made when they went over to China. Listen to what happens to this man. Zhang Yingjie co-signed a loan for a friend who later skipped out. He paid his share, but the local court didn't care. Four million people have been blocked from buying high-speed train tickets over low social credit, and more than 11 million from buying flights. To raise his score, Zhang gets in line at a local community office to donate money the government says will go to charity. <laughs> the system might have caused him to suffer, but Zhang is unwavering in his support for the government's push to score him. Now, in lots of articles on this, you'll read that it's not, it's not a private matter. They publish this stuff in parks and on billboards. They publish those people who have lost points in this system. And they're rolling this out in thousands of precincts or whatever they call them down over in China. So that each one is testing out just a little bit different measures. And then they're going to aggregate all this data and find the best, most efficient method of control for these people. And as you can see from, from what happened there, the guy had to go make donations to charity to try to get his score back up. 
they'll start you off with a thousand points. Everybody gets started off with a thousand points. And look at this little snippet from an article from The Nation. So they're talking about everybody starting off with this a thousand points and they say how you get points. Pruning a neighbor's tree earns one point, as does taking an older person to hospital. Getting a car out of a ditch is worth one point. Helping to read a water meter or lending tools is half a point. And it goes on and on. Commodifying normal human interaction down to helping someone read a water meter or lending them a tool. By 2020, China plans to track, rate, reward, and punish all of its citizens, essentially turning every personal experience into a transaction. There's more in that article. Liu Jian Yi, 64, a former farmer said, previously the village paid for cleaners, but they didn't work well. Now we do the cleaning ourselves. It gives us points and saves money. He used to travel the country working construction, blah, blah, blah. I've just mended a neighbor's chimney. If I report that to our party leader, and if my friend confirms it with a photograph, I should get another point. We get our scores at the end of each month on a WeChat page, but I don't own a smartphone, he says. And then he talks about special people asking for projects to be done. And these people got approved even though they had no experience. He says, none of them had any qualifications, but it got through anyways thanks to a few bribes. And he's supposed to give us points? Makes you wonder, said the man. It's not as fair as it sounds. It's not as neutral as it sounds. There's still bribery happening in these Chinese villages, even with this social credit system. Will there be need for courts anymore and judges and juries? Will it just instantly decide what you've done wrong? Will we ever get to plead our case and show extenuating circumstances? Are we ever innocent until proven guilty anymore in this land? And the mechanism we have right now, the best mechanism we think we're going to have for that over the next 20, 30 years will be blockchain-based systems co combined with artificial intelligence. We need to code laws and regulations into computer code because it's no longer a process that a human is involved in. It's now relegated to a machine. I hope you're getting an idea of how dystopian it is. I can already feel what you're saying. The guy admitted, but I don't have a smartphone. Yeah, right. He's still suckered into this system, even though he himself does not have the phone or the data. So all of you out there congratulating yourself, I don't have one. It's not good enough to just stay quietly and try to hide in the corner and hope they don't notice you. You're not going to escape. Between, say, George Orwell and where we are today, the technology that has developed is, in terms of magnitude, far greater than what Orwell could have imagined. And this technology has made it easy for the state, for the government, to control us as we become more and more atomized. You know, we are living in a full-blown surveillance state. I mean, just imagine the world before iPhone and the world after iPhone. I mean, the iPhone came about 
somewhere around about 2005, 2006, I think, if my, if my memory serves me. A few years after 9-11, Steve Jobs presented the first iPhone. And we can't now imagine the world, that is, our kids cannot imagine the world that existed before the iPhone came along. This little gadget has dramatically changed just about everything. In a palm of our hand, we are carrying multi-platform in which it is the, the capacity, uh, the power of computing, which is an excess of just about any computer that was available at the time when man landed on the moon, a camera, a telephone, and so on and so forth. So in that, with all the various applications that are being developed at the same time, everything that we say, think, live, move about can be monitored. That's the atomization of us. We are under constant surveillance, you know, and the power of the state is such that they can adjust and control because as they monitor each one of us, what is our strength and what is our weakness and how to break us down. But isn't the genie out of the bottle in the sense that now, look, what, what we're doing right here now is using that very same technology to thwart the efforts of an authoritarian regime. Yes, they can at a stroke of a pen, and they are trying to do it in the trust Justin Trudeau government, cancel us, both literally and figuratively. So yes, that, there's that force. But on this side, there's what we're doing right now, using the exact same technology to change the minds of people, perhaps, or at least to have some sort of cathartic release for our own sanity's sake. So I think there's hope. I mean, if there wasn't any hope, I don't know what I'd do. I'd go off to Ecuador like a friend of mine just did. Even in the Gulag, there was love. <laughs> yes. if, you, if, you, if, if you read Solzhenitsyn, you know. Yeah. I mean, yes, there has to be hope. And where there is hope, there is love, you know. And so there is that, that aspect. So, yeah, there is that hope. There is that freedom, there is that love. But what has happened is that the state that has grown under our watch, the whole idea was limited government. It is no longer limited when it comes to, here we are talking about vaccine mandate. It's no longer limited. Extent to which the state has grown and it seemed that it will keep on growing. You know, uh, It was Ronald Reagan who said, beware of the following word. I am the, from the government and I've come to help you <laughs> or some words to that extent. Where does, if the state then has no respect for that fundamental value that we, you and I have been talking about, that is the individual freedom, which is sacred, which does not come from the government, and the government, therefore, or the state, therefore, cannot in any way abridge it. And, and that would be tested, if it has to be tested, by an independent judiciary. But if the judiciary has been swallowed in whole or in part by the deep state, the big state, then that fundamental basis of a free society no longer exists. Uh, once that happens, and I think we are very close to that, then the ideas with which we have grown or come to where we are, once it is nullified, then we are simply the property of the state. 
of the powers, which is what we saw in the Soviet Union, which is what we see in China, and which is what has been the case in all totalitarian society. And that's, that's a horrible, horrible fear to live with. I want to take you to now to um, a guy called Brett King. He is a futurist and best-selling author of books like The Augmented and Bank 4.0. He founded the fintech Movin, the world's first mobile downloadable bank account. He also advised the Obama administration on fintech policy. He was talking to a group of bankers, a great big room full of bankers, and basically about 40 minutes into the presentation, starts dawning on me and dawning on the audience that what he's really saying to them is, you don't have a job anymore. I'm sorry, it's over. This industry is over. There's no bank anymore. It's fintech now. And it's totally, totally different from normal banking. This does not have money. No money. Just pretend just credits. And there's no financial advisors anymore. He tells them basically at the end of this, by the way, learn to code. <laughs> I kid you not. That's what he says. Your only choice, your only hope of surviving in the new economy is by learning to build the AIs that are going to run the world. Listen to just a little bit of his speech here, and it's worth listening to the whole thing, but he is a slimy snake, and the hour is filled with visual images of rockets and, you know, the, the old Model T Fords to, to get you feeling nostalgic about this robot raping that we're all about to undertake. Um, listen to him talk about the new banking model. You have to understand that technology is going to change the nature of banking itself. And that would have to start with the basic bank account or a value store. So when it comes to what we're seeing in terms of investment today, what's happening is you're not getting people just look at digital onboarding. You're seeing from the perspective of investment and savings, looking at behavioral mechanisms behind savings and investing. So this is the change. It's a behavioral framework around the value store, not a product framework. So when you look at how this might uh, evolve, a great illustration of this is happening in China right now with ICBC, with their AI investment platform. Now what they do is they monitor your behavior in terms of your portfolio to produce a very detailed risk model. They've eliminated the risk profile questionnaire as part of the investment process. Now from a perspective of a regulator, you might say, well, this is, this is a problem because we need that risk profile questionnaire to understand your risk profile and then understand that you've committed to that risk contained in that investment product. But that's iterative thinking. First principles design thinking is, well, let's monitor your behavior and learn how risky you are. And if that risk is a problem for you, let's change your behavior over time by educating you, by giving you the right behavioral triggers. We can tell you the best day of the week to prompt people to save. We can tell you the exact time of day when is the best time to message someone to save money. Behaviorally, we created a behavioral savings process, not a savings account. Normally, banking is about savings accounts, 
investments, and credit. No more. Those are banking products. We don't care about those anymore. What we care about now is behavior. He said it. He said it multiple times in there. He said it clear as day. I mean, he just told you that they know all about you and they're going to teach you. They're going to educate you. That's what banking is now. I mean, what does that remind you of? And they're building it by slowly, slowly convincing you that this online world is better than this real world. And that the less you use the real world, the more you're helping the real world survive. And they're disconnecting you from the realness of cash and understanding that the transactions are real. You can't hoard you can you can hoard cash. You can save it, you can hide it, you can do black market transactions, you could pay a babysitter. But in this world, bank 4.0, social credit world, you can't hide any of that. You can't even save because at a moment's notice They can take it away from you for walking across the street when they don't want you to. Or for not lending your neighbor a tool. You see how it is? Listen, the Bank 4.0 guy talks about how this is just temporary. In the future, you're just going to identify the person based on a set of data. You know, what they do, what they look like, their defining biometrics. These are elements you will confirm the identity with. So when we look at the next uh, 20, 30 years and the building blocks of financial services, what is clear is that there's some big changes taking place. You know, When China is looking at this problem, combined with these new payment experiences networks, identity now has just become as simple as facial recognition with a smile. You actually don't have to smile, but it's, uh, it helps for uh, the experience and psychology side of this. We are not far away from that. Uh, that's the, that your phone is already an extension of you. You're already a cyborg. You don't even, well, most people don't realize they are already a cyborg. It, that phone is an extension of yourself. It's just that the, the data rate, the rate at which of, of the communication rate between you and the cybernetic extension of yourself that is your phone and computer is slow. It's very slow. And, and that, that, that is like a tiny straw of, of, of information flow between your biological self and your digital self. And we need to make that tiny straw like a giant river. It really all comes down to the smartphone. The proliferation of smartphones is central to the rise of mobile banking. This whole smartphone convenient, oh, but I can just look on a map on my phone and find out where I'm going. Oh, but I can see pictures of my, my kids instantly. Oh, but I mean, I can order this t- today and have it here tomorrow. None of those things, none of that will even exist or be useful in your life if this comes to be. All of those toys will be taken away. And all that will remain is the tracking. All that will remain is you'll be funneled into whatever direction they want you to go. Internet at home on your laptop is not the same as these things. Not the same at all as these things. Internet isn't bad. Cell phones aren't bad. 
Convenience is great. But realize that the people trying to keep you hooked into that system are just like drug dealers. They're just like pimps. They're just like child molesters. They are grooming you. They are grooming you. And as soon as we are hooked, as soon as we cannot turn it off, as soon as all of our real money becomes virtual, merits, as soon as they hand us our thousand points for being good citizens, we're done. There is no going back. There is no going back. No going back to freedom. No going back to being an independent individual, which means no going forward in a world where you can choose your own destiny and direction. I'm reminded of Isabel Patterson's essay, Why Real Money is Indispensable, which appeared in her book, The God of the Machine, and I quote, What is most astonishing is that when the enemies of civilization have openly declared their intention to destroy it, to break down the circuit of the high-energy society of contract, and have explained how they mean to do so, those who are to be destroyed will deliberately carry out the program of ruin. End quote. Isn't that what we're seeing today? Of course, when she wrote those words, Patterson wasn't referring to some social credit great reset, but to the destructive inflationary policies with respect to fiat money and cited how the paper currency of Russia, Germany, or France before 1914 is now waste paper. And this also explains what our current governments are attempting to do to our fiat currency and why people must still protect their real wealth by buying gold, silver, and other real quote-unquote commodities. I'd like to close with this quote from Ayn Rand's essay, The Meaning of Money. Quote, Money rests on the axiom that every man is the owner of his mind and his effort. Money allows no power to prescribe the value of your effort except the voluntary choice of the man who is willing to trade you his effort in return. Money permits you to obtain for your goods and for your labor that which they are worth to the men who buy them, but no more. Money permits no deals except those to mutual benefit by the unforced judgment of the traders. So long as men live together on earth and need means to deal with one another, their only substitute, if they abandon money, is the muzzle of a gun. End quote. Which is exactly why money is not the root of all evil, but the root of all good. And why all the definable forces of evil are so obsessed with eliminating money and the destruction of wealth. And with the elimination of money, so too is our individuality and privacy eliminated. There was once a time when politicians and governments went out of their way to assure us that our individuality and privacy was being protected. No longer. Social credit scores are socialist controls imposed by some on others. To believe that they can run an economy based not on production but on behavior begs a million dollar question. How will anything get produced? Without money or a free market, only by a coerced behavior, quote-unquote, once known as slavery. And on that note, I'm inviting you to exercise your chosen and voluntary behavior by joining us again next week, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Everything will be alright. The national database has got to be organized differently.
I want all citizens to have a right to see their own files. And I want legislation to make unauthorised access to personal files illegal. Minister, it is not possible. It is. It isn't. It is. It isn't. It is. It isn't. It is. 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 It is.